Throughout this episode, you'll hear occasional dynamically placed advertisements as well as host-read ads by me promoting the work of my sponsors, similar to what you'd experience when you're binging your favorite YouTube content. If you find the ads disruptive, consider joining my community on Patreon. Premium submarines receive full-length ad-free episodes, hundreds of hours of bonus content, and the ability to connect and chat with other listeners. To learn more, visit patreon.com slash backfromtheborderline. Hello Molly, um, my name's Sammy and I live in the UK and I'm really excited so I thought if I sent a voicemail I'd just watch the first episode of She-Hulk which is the Marvel series about the attorney. Anyway, the important bit and the thing that I absolutely was absolutely blown away by was one of the first scenes in the first episode, uh, She-Hulk with the Hulk, do they try and practice DPT, dialectical behavioural therapy and mindfulness and it's just like, it shocked me because apart from hearing it, you know, after being diagnosed and things, I'd never heard of it before and I just thought, oh my god, it's on a Marvel show, people actually might pay attention to it, like, so I just, I mean, you've, you've probably already seen it, but wow. <laughs> okay, uh, thank you and bye. I am listening to the period um, episode and I just have to say I didn't even know PMDD was a thing and hearing you talk about it is blowing my mind I am literally going through a breakup because the literal week before my period I was just like I can't live with my boyfriend anymore he doesn't clean he take care of me the way I'm supposed to be getting taken care of and you're right like in those those other two weeks I just feel like I'm in love with him there's nothing he can do and now like he's had enough we've both had enough but that's besides the point I just want to say like thank you so much for everything you do your research your hard work like you you're genuinely seriously changing people's lives and you you're you're so amazing i'm so glad to have stumbled upon your podcast thank you so much hey molly it's jennifer and i am in dallas and i just wanted to say thank you um for the platform that you have here and how beneficial it is to my healing and just the work that i have to do on myself um I've been a long-time listener. I'm in and out because I don't always work on myself like I should. Um, but I see where that is getting me. And I see that this is something that I need to stick with. So you are such an inspiration. And um, it's really just so helpful um, to know <laughs> that you still have really bad days too even though like you're doing all of this amazing stuff things are still not good for you some days and um that's really important to me because I often find that like I'm never in the right spot um so for you just to be open about that and that you still struggle means a lot to me because you're not fake and you're real and I love you for that and I just wanted to say thank you have a great day Hello everyone, welcome back to the podcast. I want to give a huge shout out to Sammy, Vanessa, and Jennifer. 
you heard their voicemails just now. If you want to send me a voicemail, you can go to backfromtheborderline.com and click the little microphone icony thingy mabobber at the bottom and you can hear your voice on the podcast, maybe. I can't play every voicemail that I receive, but I do try my best to share them. So first, Sammy, I have definitely heard of the new Marvel show, but I had not heard that they practice DBT in it, which is just freaking amazing. And for those of you who aren't aware, dialectical behavior therapy is probably the most common form of therapy that anyone who will come into a therapist's office saying that they identify with BPD or get a formal diagnosis, you'd most certainly usually hear about DBT first. And I am very frequently saying that I think everyone on earth would benefit from DBT skills. And you know, something that I learned from my previous therapist was that it's very common now, well, very common might be an exaggeration, but it's quite common now for DBT skills to be taught in corporate environments. So pretty cool. Vanessa, your voicemail about being mind blown about the PMS and PMDD episode. Yeah, girl, same. (laughs) I am right now 10 days away from my period and I feel like I want to murder everyone. If you are a fellow menstrual cycle sufferer, and even if you're not, even if you know anyone who has their period every single month, then you should be listening to that episode because it will blow your mind. And I can't tell you the benefit that menstrual cycle awareness has brought to my life. I now plan my life around my menstrual cycle at least the best that I can because I already know that the week before my period, I'm going to be extra irritable, extra emotionally sensitive, and just being aware of that. This podcast, if you're a longtime listener, it's all about awareness. The more hyper aware you are and assessing your vulnerabilities is one of the skills that my therapist Bev taught me. And assessing your vulnerabilities is a skill that includes have you eaten? Have you gone on a walk? Have you had enough sleep? And all of these things as people who are extra emotionally sensitive, you all my listeners are, that's part of making sure that we're in the best emotional state that we are. And part of assessing your vulnerabilities, if you're like me, is also, am I premenstrual right now? Have I gotten enough sleep? Should I really maybe book this social gathering when I'm about to be on my period? So I really do try to track my cycle and plan my life as much as I can around it because I know that the week before my period, I like to be more within myself. I'm extra sensitive to noise even. It's crazy. So I'm so glad that you love that episode, Vanessa. I'm so sorry to hear about your breakup, but hopefully this extra wisdom will help you in future intimate relationships and also your relationship with yourself, the most important one. And I also want to thank Jennifer for that beautiful last voicemail that you heard. And I will always be real with you. 
All y'all definitely know that about me by now. And I absolutely still have bad days. I spend so much of my time reading about self-improvement, psychology, spirituality. And the thing is, the suffering never really stops, but the power comes from being more self-aware and more resilient. And so, hell yeah, I still have really bad days, but my bad days are experienced a little bit differently. I feel more in control of my life. I don't feel so out of control of my emotions. And I'm more aware that bad days, difficult feelings, and all of those things come and go like a wave. Everything comes and goes, even good things. And so being less attached, zooming out, and taking a higher perspective of things really has helped me too. I love you all so, so much. Whenever I hear voicemails, every single voicemail, I'm just like virtually hugging you. I love every single one of you so, so much. Another hilarious email that I received from someone this week was literally like, hi, Molly. I love your podcast so much, but can you please cut dairy out of your diet? Because I feel like I can hear phlegm in your voice sometimes. And when I tell you that I fucking died over that, (laughs) because I know, I know my voice is scratchy. And I know that sometimes I have like phlegm and funny enough, I actually emailed this person back and I said, um, I recently cut dairy out of my diet to see if it could help me. Ironically, not just because of this listener that emailed me that, but I was like, oh my God, I'm sorry if I gross you out and you hear my phlegm. That makes me so embarrassed. So if you all are hearing that, I'm sorry. Like I can't help it. I do my best. I have always had a raspy voice. My mom told me that I screamed a lot when I was little. Like I screamed when I was happy, when I was sad, when I was angry, lots of screaming. And so I've always had this very deep and raspy voice. The amount of times I get people asking me at my job or just in my daily life, are you sick? I'm like, no, this is just how my voice sounds. Yep. This is why I could never have picked up a smoking habit. Because can you imagine if I smoked like 10 packs a day, I would be, I would have an indistinguishable voice. So that's my little sidebar for you. I got another email from a listener and I won't disclose her name, but I wanted to read it because it was so moving for me. And she says, Hi, I've been following the podcast from the very first episode, and I can't even begin to express my gratitude for what it's done for me. I also wanted to respond to the reviewer in your last episode who disagrees with throwing away the BPD label. I too once found such clarity in the label. It gave me a starting point in my journey toward recovery, but the label of BPD is not explaining why or how. It is telling you definitively that you are disordered because of what you are. It neglects entirely the factors that have caused the quote disorder, which I believe are paramount. When I was diagnosed as disordered, I was told we don't know why this happens, but this is a lie. We do. It is trauma. Carl Jung says, in all chaos, there is a cosmos. In all disorder, a secret order. I believe that sums it up perfectly. We're not disordered. We're traumatized. We are suffering. 
we need healing. And with that label, it is hard to believe that there is a light at the end of the tunnel. Through your resources, through your words of encouragement, through books you have recommended, particularly building a life worth living and the body keeps the score, I began to put in the work. I believed you and you believed in me, in us, that we could do it. It took me months, but I believe I experienced what Marsha Linehan described in her books as enlightenment. I feel that I'm cured of BPD traits, and it all started with changing my belief that I was disordered and in learning the root cause of all my symptoms, suffering, in remembering the stories of my childhood that caused these behaviors. I'm now a completely different person. I'm a different mom. I feel healed. I know now that I had all the answers all along. If only I was brave enough to go searching for them. It started with your eye-opening episode on splitting. It started with you. I'm so eternally, endlessly grateful for the absolutely life-changing wisdom and guidance you've given me. Thank you. I've found myself. Now, when I tell you that that review made me cry, because that's exactly why I'm doing what I'm doing, and it is for listeners just like this that I'm making this podcast and I'm making it even for listeners who do still identify with the label because as I've shared before, I feel like the label has its place in part of our journey, but it's only at the beginning part. And then eventually we have to do exactly what this reviewer says. We have to find who we are outside of all the labels, all of society's labels, not just the label of BPD, Every single one of them, all the labels, all the constructs, all the expectations that are thrust upon us, you have to find out who you are underneath all of that. I also want to thank all of you who have submitted reviews on Apple Podcasts. I'm recording this in the future, so you'll be hearing this in a slightly different cadence. I create episodes a few at a time, but the episode that just went live this week as I'm recording this episode is the one where I shared the more critical review, which is totally fine. I don't need to hear all positive reviews. But as I read that out loud on the episode, all of these amazing reviews came flooding in this week. And I just want to thank each and every one of you who submitted your reviews. And I always want to hear your your feedback. Um, positive or negative or in between but thank you to everyone who submitted your review this week it really means the world to me so if you want to share your feedback on the podcast and how it changed your life write me a review it really does help so for today's episode we're going to be talking more about distortions in our thinking and the reason why I want to talk about this more is because I realize how much of our suffering comes from the ways that we're thinking, the ways that we over-dramatize things, catastrophize things, personalize things. And this is inspired by the conversations I have with friends who are also in the BPD community and also from just observing myself throughout this journey that I'm having. And I see that 
90% of my suffering, it's a very unscientific uh, metric, I'm just sort of making it up, but I know that it's a lot. The vast majority of my suffering comes from my distorted thought patterns. I create these narratives in my mind where I am this all-suffering main character. I'm imagining the worst-case scenario at all times, and it really, really prevents me from experiencing a life worth living. And if you're anything like me, it's likely that that is something that is a hindrance for you as well. If you haven't yet listened to the last few episodes and you're just jumping in, the last few episodes we've been really talking about how our biology as human beings is a very real thing that we have to face and be aware of every single day. We are wired to survive and our biology is going to make us believe that we are in danger a lot more often than we actually are, especially as those of us who identify with BPD traits. Because if you identify with BPD or you struggle with your mental health in other ways, it is very likely as well that as you grew up as a child, you interpreted certain things as traumatic and it wired your nervous system in a way to where maybe you perceive abandonment where it is not. You perceive rejection where it may not be realistically there. You may be constantly always thinking of the worst case scenario. You're scared of even thinking that something could go right because you think you're going to be let down. And at the end of the day, this is all down to our biology. Our bodies are just trying to keep us safe and protected, but in order to evolve and in order to experience peace, I don't even like thinking of the word healed anymore or cured or happiness. You so often hear people that are trying to recover from mental illness say, I just want to be cured. I just want to be happy. I want to be normal. I don't believe that any of those things exist. The definition of each of those things is different for everyone. What I want now and what I realize is I just want inner peace. I don't want to be healed. I don't want to be recovered. I don't want to be cured. I want to protect my peace and I want to become incredibly resilient. So it takes a lot to knock me off my rocker. And I want that for each and every one of you too. So in order to do that, we have to really start looking at the way our thoughts work, particularly the distorted ways that our thoughts work. It is possible to change these pathways, the ways that we think. But in order to do that, we have to practice just like anything else. No one pops out of the womb an amazing stoic philosopher or an incredible critical thinker. We have to work on these things. We have to check ourselves. We have to stop and say, wait, is this really reality? Do I need to check the facts here? 
Am I blowing this out of proportion? But what we're going to do today is talk about some techniques that you can use and you can start today in taking a more critical look at your thoughts. And if you do these techniques and if you are diligent about it, you will experience a more peaceful existence. Guaranteed. I am willing to guarantee that, that if you're religious about this, that you will experience a more peaceful existence. So let's talk about it. So there's a concept in Buddhism called anatta, which roughly translates to non-self. It's essentially the concept of the self is entirely an illusion. And the person that you think you are today is a different entity from what you were 10 years ago or even 10 seconds ago. And I want you to really think about that. As people who identify with BPD, we're always so set on finding an identity and feeling like we're so broken and abnormal from other people who seem to have such a solid sense of self or identity. But really, the healthiest thing is to not identify so heavily with people, places, and things, and hobbies. Sure, it's good to know who you are, but it's also good to zoom out and not focus so much on this grounded sense of self. At the end of the day, a lot of these things are masks. And when someone is you know, saying that their personality is disordered, for example, according to the DSM, this right here is such a profound point in my opinion, because think about it. Are you the same person that you were 10 years ago? I just went home a few weeks ago and I was cleaning out some of my stuff in my childhood bedroom and I came across some AOL instant messenger printout conversations that I was having when I was 12. And when I tell you, I read some of the things that I typed and I was like, who in the fuck is that? I could not relate to the person that was typing all of this stuff at all. It was so eerie. I, it's just nuts. And then yet again, I ran across a couple of other letters that I wrote to an old boyfriend when I was around 19 or so. Again, I couldn't really relate to the person that was writing those letters. And now here I am at almost 33 years old and I consider myself to just be a completely different person. So the AOL instant messenger conversations were probably from when I was 12. The letters from when I was 20. Now here at 33, we are constantly evolving. There is no sense of self. So this Buddhist concept, Anatta, I really love because it is no self. You are constantly changing. You're not a unified ego, but this ongoing and constantly evolving process. And I read in a book recently something that said along the lines of most of the pain that we experience is caused not so much by the events that we're trying to avoid, but instead by the identity that we want to have. There is actually evidence that if we reflect less on our personal life narrative and more on an expanded sense of self, we can drastically improve our well-being. 
the reason why mindfulness is thought to be so effective is because it actually helps us decrease the amount of time that we're ruminating about our inner narratives, about our sense of self. Stoic philosophers also had a method called the view from above, which is essentially the idea of really contemplating the vastness of the cosmos and the contrasting smallness of us and our daily concerns. And this, if you actually use this contemplation, it will really help you when your life is in a really volatile state. I'm going to read you a quote by Marcus Aurelius, who is a extremely famous Stoic philosopher. The quote is this, to see them from above, the thousands of animal herds, the rituals, the voyages on calm stormy seas, the different ways we come into the world, share it with one another and leave it. Consider the lives led once by others long ago, the lives to be led by others after you, the lives led even now in foreign lands that you will never know. How many people don't even know your name? How many will soon have forgotten your name? How many will offer you praise now and tomorrow? Perhaps contempt. For me, you can't but think your trivial concerns are so silly when you read a quote like this. And for me, an extremely beneficial practice has been contemplating how small I am in the scheme of the universe. Now, contemplating your smallness can either be a very empowering thing and calming thing, or it can be a really scary thing. It's the way you look at it. It's all about perspective. And for me, I've learned that it's very empowering because at the end of the day, life goes on, the tides turn, the seasons change, what you're freaking out about today, it's very unlikely that it's going to matter even to you in 30 days or two years. And really reflecting on that is super important. And it also really humbles you because at the end of the day too, there are millions and billions of other human beings living on this earth that also have the same concerns. It's so important to remind ourselves constantly, especially as highly emotional people, that we're not alone. It's not just us. We're part of something much bigger. The Stoic philosophers thought that the primary reason that we suffer is because we're unable to comprehend and love nature in its entirety. They believed that everything happened for a reason. And so when everything happens for a reason, we free ourselves from the blame and resentment and the anxiety of trying to control fate, control our fate and control the people around us. Because think about how much of our time that we spend trying to control the lives and feelings of others. 
So adopting a stoic perspective also allows us to see that what we naturally view as bad is actually nothing more than limited perspective. And if we open our perspective, maybe it isn't exactly all so bad. There is a extremely famous 20th century psychiatrist named Viktor Frankl and an award-winning author. And one of his most famous books is an analysis of his own experience as a prisoner in a Nazi death camp during the Holocaust, experiencing the most imaginable horrors any human being could ever comprehend. And this is a quote from his book about how he used this tactic of zooming out and viewing his struggles, even in his experience in these Nazi death camps. He talks about how he used this tactic to his advantage and how it saved him psychologically. He says, All that oppressed me at that moment became objective, seen and described from the remote viewpoint of science. By this method, I succeeded somehow in rising above the situation, above the sufferings of the moment, and I observed them as if they were already the past. Both I and my troubles became the interesting object of psychoscientific study taken on by myself. So if Viktor Frankl can zoom out and see things objectively while he is experiencing a Nazi death camp in the middle of the Holocaust, certainly we can use this tactic to take a more objective, zoomed-out perspective of the suffering in our own lives. If that doesn't put stuff in perspective for you, I don't know what will. In a book by Donald Robertson called The Philosophy of Cognitive Behavioral Therapy, He talks about how this technique of zooming out is used in modern therapy too. In the book, he describes the tendency of depressed patients to magnify their issues. He calls this taking a worm's eye view of their situations. And if so, if you can imagine a worm is at the the bottom, is helpless. So to counter this, patients are encouraged to take an enlarged perspective where they distance themselves from their current circumstances and view them with greater objectivity and contemplate them from a greater scale and greater time span. I am currently working on mastering the ability and for my first instinct when I feel a feeling or thought arise to immediately try and zoom out and view it from this higher bird's eye perspective and it takes time practice and dedication because remember nobody is born being an all-knowing philosophical thinker this is why even some of the greatest philosophers went to schools and spent all of their lives studying under great thinkers so that they could train their minds to think in this way and we're no different stop expecting yourself to be perfect at these things. 
Stop these ruminating thought patterns of thinking, I'm never going to get better at this. I suck at this. I am always going to be this way because that's just not the case. So we're going to now do something a little more practical. I have an assignment for you for this week and all you'll need for this assignment for this week that I'm giving to you is a way to keep a log of something. So if you like keeping track of things in the notes app on your phone, that's my go-to because I always have my cell phone on me, but you can also use a piece of paper, a notepad, and a pen if you like to do it that way. I'm always here for physically writing things out because I feel like it's more powerful, but unfortunately we don't usually walk around with a notepad in reach. So I've found that an iPhone notes app is much more useful or any kind of note app that you have on your phone because you'll always have your phone on you. So what you'll be doing this week is something called cognitive restructuring because All of this that we've been discussing is all well and good, but as I mentioned on so many previous episodes of the podcast, you can't do much with this information that I share with you if you're not putting it into practice in your everyday life. And we're going to do this, and I'm going to help you with this practical method that you're going to be doing this week called cognitive restructuring. Cognitive restructuring is essentially a type of therapeutic technique that helps people notice and change their negative thinking patterns. The first step that you're going to want to do this week is to keep a log in the form of a notes app on your phone or actual notepad. And what I want you to do is to try to take note of every undesirable emotion that you notice. Anything from minor annoyance to severe anxiety. Notice when any kind of troublesome feeling or emotion emerges. I don't really like labeling feelings and emotions as negative or positive, but you know, something that makes you feel less than peaceful, something that is triggering your fight or flight where you feel activated and unsafe or in threat mode. Really notice when those feelings come up and you're going to want to take a note of them on your piece of paper or in your notes app on your phone. The simple act of keeping a log is going to help you notice so much more of these emotions than you normally would. And every time you log an emotion, take a note of the situation that triggered it. And if possible, the chain of thoughts that immediately preceded that trigger. Just so that we can talk about how you might put that into practice, let's give an example of someone waiting on a text from their partner. Your partner isn't messaging you back and maybe it's even been like eight hours and typically they're constantly responding to your texts. They're not texting you back and so you start to panic. You've got other things that you could focus on in the day, but if you are anything like me, if your favorite person of the moment goes dark, you can't focus on your exercising for the day, your work, anything. It's 
your entire thought process is dedicated towards why are they not texting me back? And so what you would do if you're putting this cognitive restructuring into place, the moment you notice those feelings pop up when they're not texting you back, it's been a little too long. How do you typically feel? For me, I start feeling anxiety. I feel tightness in my chest. I feel stressed. I feel afraid. And so those are the feelings and sensations. So you're going to want to note those down. And then what you want to do is take note of the situation that triggered it, which is partner not texting me back. And then what you'd write down is tight chest, anxious, can't concentrate on anything else. And then what you want to do is note down the chain of thoughts that start to happen. So for me in that situation in the past, the chain of thoughts would likely be, oh no, they haven't texted me back. They must be mad at me for the fight we had two days ago. Maybe they're cheating on me. Maybe they died in a car accident, right? These are all the kind of catastrophic thoughts and you want to write them all down. That's just one example. There could be millions of other examples. Maybe someone cuts you off in traffic. Obviously, you can't take note of these things when you're actually driving, but when you stop, take note. How did you feel? Did you feel angry? Did you want to scream at them? Did you actually passive aggressively speed up and uh, cut around them, right? And then write down the thoughts that you thought, what a fucking asshole. They probably want to ruin my day, right? Write all these things down. And you want to be obsessive about writing this down in your notepad or on your app, whatever way you're tracking these things. And over time, the idea is, is that you'll begin to notice patterns and trends and you'll find that certain lines of reasoning dominate your emotional experience. And what do I mean by that is maybe you'll notice a trend and I'm going to use myself for example, is that the line that goes through all of your negative emotional experiences and triggers and then subsequent thought and shame spirals, the dominant theme is I'm not worthy of love or everyone is going to leave me in the end or bad things always happen to me. What is the narrative that emerges? Because you will likely be able to see trends and that's what you really want to work with. It's likely that you're going to see that a certain kind of cognitive distortion or a certain amount of mistaken reasoning is responsible for a massive percentage of your daily struggles. And by identifying this common narrative of mistaken reasoning, you can really start to permanently reprogram your mental software and start to eliminate these undesirable feeling states, much like you were a computer program. And I know it might sound a little impersonal to think about ourselves as computers, but the more that I've learned about cognitive distortions, and we've talked a little bit about this on previous episodes of different types of cognitive biases that we get caught in and different distortions, But in reality, if you actually zoom out, like the whole theme of this episode is, is you'll see that we all kind of think in the same distorted ways 
They're, they're little frameworks. They're all the same. And once you start being aware of these things, you go, oh my God, I'm doing this all day. It's just like when you become aware of splitting, of what splitting is. And then when you're aware of it, you're like, holy shit, I'm splitting all the time. And I wasn't even aware of it. And nothing in this world is perfectly black and white. There are shades of gray to everything. So let's talk a little bit about these top 10 ways that we can find distorted patterns in our thinking. And what I'm doing in pointing these out is with your assignment this week, as you're noting down all of the negative sensations, painful sensations, and these thought spirals, and you're really keeping track of them, what you can then do is start identifying some of these common distorted ways of thinking and you're going to see them pop up. And by being aware of them, you can immediately, when you get better at this, and I'm finding this is actually working in my own life, is when I start going down a road with some of my thought patterns, I'm like, oh, there's the splitting again. There's the overgeneralization again. And then I can quickly get myself back into a more realistic state. I can practice zooming out and viewing these things like a scientist and really calm myself down. So let's talk about these different cognitive distortions that are likely going to pop up as you begin doing your assignment this week. I feel like a teacher giving you your homework, (laughs) but seriously, this will be probably one of the most beneficial exercises you will ever, ever do. So the first one is our old favorite, our old friend, all or nothing thinking. And in the BPD community, we call this what splitting and all or nothing thinking is our tendency to think in extremes, like always, never without considering nuanced degrees in between. So all or nothing thinking is my boyfriend broke up with me. I always ruin my relationships. When you start tuning into how often you say always or never, you will blow your own mind. And being aware of when you're doing this, all or nothing thinking is so common. Not just people who identify with BPD do it. We're all doing it. I was about to say, we always do it. (laughs) That's splitting. We don't always, but it is very common. The next cognitive distortion is overgeneralization. So override generalization is the tendency to make broad assumptions based on limited specifics. An example of overgeneralization is if one person thinks I'm stupid, everyone will. If I fail one job interview, I'm going to fail all of them. Look at the ways that overgeneralization starts to pop up in your cognitive restructuring journaling that you're doing this week. The third one, mental filter. So mental filter is a tendency to focus on small negative details without thinking about the big picture. I am guilty of this a lot. So an example of this is my 4.0 grade point average doesn't matter because I got one C on one assignment. So one mistake means that your entire history is now blown apart and you're a horrible person. Another example of this could be maybe you're trying to cut back on drinking 
and you've had a really long streak of sobriety. And one night you get super drunk and embarrass yourself and you think, I'm useless. I can't do anything right. Right. And you're excluding the maybe six weeks where you went completely without drinking. You need to look at the big picture. And if you zoom out, you're more likely to think, yep, that was a stumbling block, but I did six weeks without alcohol. I bet I can maybe do 12 weeks this time. So look out for these mental filters as you are doing your journaling and noting down of your feelings and thought spirals this week. Another one, disqualifying the positive. So this is the tendency to dismiss positive aspects of an experience for irrational reasons. An example of this, if my friend compliments me, she's probably just saying it out of pity. If the people at work said you did an amazing job on that project, they're probably just trying to be nice. Another one, jumping to conclusions. So we're all familiar with this. This is our tendency to make unfounded negative assumptions, often in the form of attempted mind reading or fortune telling. So an example of this, if my romantic interest doesn't text me today, they must not be interested in me at all. If I don't hear back from the company, I didn't get the job. If my friend doesn't text me back or react with a laughing face emoji at my comment, they hate me. Think about how often we're jumping to conclusions. The next one, catastrophizing, another favorite in my life. Not favorite, but just common. This is the tendency to magnify or minimize certain details of an experience, painting it as worse or more severe than it is. So for an example, if my partner leaves me, then I will never be able to get over it. How often do we catastrophize? If I lose my job, I'm going to be homeless. And while that may be the case for some people, it's very unlikely that the majority of the time that homelessness would immediately follow losing a job. Catastrophizing is something that has absolutely contributed to so much of my suffering. All right, another one, emotional reasoning, the tendency to take one's emotions as evidence of objective truth. An example, if I feel offended by something that someone says, then they must have wronged me. So often we take our feelings and thoughts as evidence as what's actually happening. And that contributes to an incredible amount of our suffering. Just because we are offended or our personal worldview is potentially under attack by what someone says or we perceive it to be does not necessarily mean that that's what has happened. Another one, should statements. This is the tendency to apply rigid rules to how one should or must behave. So an example of this is, My friend maybe criticized the way I'm acting, and that's something that friends should never do. My partner told me that my behavior is making it impossible for our relationship to work, and if they really loved me, they would never say that. 
Another one, labeling. The tendency to describe ourselves in the form of absolute labels. So an example of this, if I make a calculation error or a common mistake in my numbers, it makes me a total idiot. If I get completely wasted and make a fool of myself, then I am a useless, awful, alcoholic addict. If I am unfaithful once in a relationship, I'm a cheater and a horrible person forever. While, of course, chronic and repeated instances of abuse of alcohol could mean that we're struggling with an addiction or chronic and repeated instances of infidelity could mean that we have a serious issue with infidelity, but throwing labels on ourselves is rarely a helpful thing and it isn't who we are at the end of the day. The last cognitive distortion is personalization, another one that pops up a lot in my life. And this is the tendency to attribute negative outcomes to ourselves without evidence. A prime example of this one is if my partner is in a bad mood, then I must have done something to piss them off. Making everything about ourselves is something that is very, very common in people who identify with BPD traits. And it's so easy for this to be labeled as kind of like a narcissistic thing. But in reality, in my experience, when I've made everything about me, it's almost this compulsive unconscious thing where I'm just really trying to be hyper vigilant and make sure everyone's happy with me and I haven't done anything wrong. And it is exhausting. And if you do that, I imagine that you can also relate to how incredibly exhausting that hypervigilance is and thinking always that everything is your fault or something about you. But if you actually see it for what it is, which is like a very self-involved way of being in the world, and the vast majority of the time when someone is upset or something's going on, it's usually not about us. It's about something else. People are much more concerned about themselves and things going on around them. And I've found that my tendency to personalize, to make everything about me and think that every negative emotion in other people is because of something I did has actually really, really done a number on my intimate relationships. It makes people feel exhausted with us. It makes people feel drained by us. And so I encourage you to be on the lookout for tendencies to personalize. So I list these different cognitive distortions out for you, all 10 of these, because I want you to try and identify which of these patterns start popping up in your journaling throughout the week. So as you notice sensations or emotions and feelings arise in your body, because typically the feeling for me pops up before the thoughts start. So I will be activated into some fight or flight situation where I perceive abandonment, rejection, a lack of a sense of safety, And nine times out of 10, it is not logical and I can talk my way out of it. But 
before I did any of this work on myself, it would pop up as a feeling. And then the tightness in the chest, the anxiety that just comes up out of nowhere. And then the thoughts start. And then I will get myself worked up into a complete tizzy with these. It's always going to be this way. I must have done something wrong. And you'll notice that these different cognitive distortions, they can literally start piling up on one another. So all or nothing thinking. It's always going to be like this. I always mess up the relationships. Overgeneralization. They my partner definitely thinks I'm stupid. I said something wrong last night. So I guarantee you that he just thinks I'm a complete idiot. And mental filtering is you forget all of the amazing things that have happened in the last week with you and your partner. And you're focusing on this one thing that you might've said that pissed them off. That's also mental filtering, disqualifying the positive. Jumping to conclusions then could pop in and say, they're definitely going to break up with me. If he doesn't text me back, he hates me. Catastrophizing. And when he leaves me, I'm never going to find love. I'm always going to be alone. Then maybe a should statement popped in. If he really loved me, he would text me. People that love you should always text you back. They should never leave you on red. Then labeling. I always end up with guys that treat me like this. I'm such a useless piece of shit. I'm a loser. And all of these thoughts have the other cognitive distortion of a grand sense of personalization. You see how they just stack and stack on top of each other. And all the while we're getting more and more dysregulated. Our heart is pounding. We're stressing out. And then we're maybe wanting to smoke weed or drink or text another person because We need that validation. We need something else outside of ourselves to ground us. And then what often tends to happen after we spend five hours freaking out, applying every single cognitive distortion in the book, maybe we get a text from our partner that said, hey, babe, I'm so sorry. My phone totally died. I'm on my way home. How's it going? And little do they know you were literally planning out the entire demise of your relationship and look how much time you wasted. And then if you're anything like me back in the day, the partner gets home and you are so dysregulated and so annoyed and you almost like hate them a little bit because you're kind of blaming them for how bad your day was. They should have just texted you back and then you could start a fight. Whereas if they came home and you just let it all go and you could enjoy a beautiful night you start an entire fight when they get home because they should have texted you. Do you see what I'm saying? How many of you out there can relate to this? This is why it is so incredibly important for you to do this assignment this week. Keep a log. Every time you feel activated, every time you feel a feeling arise, start to write that down write down what the sensations and the early stage feelings, it's probably going to be something physical, write it down. As soon as you feel it, get your log out and write it down. Then think what triggered this? Was it an email? Was it a text? Was it a lack of text? Was it a look? Was it anything? Write down the trigger and then write down the thought spirals, all of them. And if you can try to identify some cognitive distortions and at the end of the week, don't try to do it before Try to do this a full week before you kind of go back and look at all of it. You want to have enough data 
to really see trends. You're zooming out. You're becoming a scientist. You're becoming a researcher. You're taking a higher perspective. So give yourself enough time to gather a week's worth of data, be really good about doing this, and then sit down with some coffee or tea where you won't be disturbed and really look at everything. Read through all of the things that you wrote down throughout the week and you will start to see trends and patterns, certain narratives that are coming up. And try to look at this completely like you were a researcher looking at someone else's thoughts. Maybe even pretend like it's a friend that's asking you to really look and help them identify some things that continue to pop up for them. And write down whatever comes up. You can't be perfect about this. Get another piece of paper out, and I encourage you to actually do this part with paper. If you have to use your iPhone to do the log, that's fine. But really get a piece of paper out, and as you're reading it, just intuitively write some things that pop up as you notice this, as you notice the trends. Maybe unworthiness pops up for you. Always thinking everything will go wrong, abandonment, whatever pops up. However silly it may seem, just write it down and do just a thought dump as you are reading through your log and really start analyzing this narrative. Because as we talked about on previous episodes, who we are, our thoughts, our accumulation of our character, the thoughts we continue to think equal the actions and reactions we usually take. And when you look at this thought log, ask yourself, is it any surprise that I feel the way I do right now. And if you're honest with yourself, it's likely that you will say, no, of course I feel unworthy and like shit, or like I'll never find love or fill in the blank. We are nothing more than accumulation of the thoughts that we have, which lead us to our actions and reactions. And it is completely possible to change this, but it requires you to take a hard look at the ways that you're allowing your brain to go down these distorted pathways. And I guarantee you that after you do this, the next week, as soon as you start feeling these activated feelings, you're going to immediately say, am I acting in reality right now? How can I zoom out and take a higher perspective of this? And then you can apply something called Socratic questioning. I highly recommend that you do the journaling of the emotions and feelings that pop up for a week first before even trying to utilize the Socratic method. So this is phase two, but this method of questioning your thoughts and feelings is going to help you challenge these cognitive distortions and become an expert at emotionally regulating yourself. The Socratic method and the philosophy of Socrates is a old as hell way to examine ourselves and our thoughts. And when I say old, it's over 2000 years old. But even though it's so old, this ancient Greek art of questioning our thoughts still holds a huge amount of value in the modern world, and we can use it to our advantage. Socrates was a philosopher that lived between the years 470 and 399 BC, 
and he is often thought of as the grandfather of Western philosophy and the first true moral philosopher. Socrates famously wasn't super interested in many of the theoretical studies that were captivating the minds of other philosophers of his time. Socrates' primary interest was answering this question, how can we live a better life? And my God, isn't that what we are all here trying to do, especially on this podcast? So for Socrates, it was far better to focus on living a life full of virtue than it was to focus on material wealth, identity, status, or power. And he believed that the answer to this question of how to live a good life is already hidden within you as an individual. He believed that it was our individual responsibility to examine our beliefs, our values, our expectations, our assumptions, and our perceptions. And it is our responsibility to care for our own soul. And by doing this, he believed that it was completely possible to develop a very deep understanding and awareness of who we are as people and with greater awareness becomes a greater ability to question why we think the way we think. And all this questioning our thinking ultimately allows us to find out what we really believe, why we believe it, and then question whether or not that particular belief is valid or misleading. Why I'm bringing up Socrates is because his beliefs and his method of questioning your own beliefs and thoughts is going to be the magic key that you need to take this exercise that I'm asking you to do this week and really make lasting change within yourself as an individual and really change your brain pathways, the way that your mind is working and experience a deeper sense of inner peace. As we walk through our life, we pick things up along the way. And so from the moment we're born into this world, we start from that moment to form our own unique view of the world around us. And our worldview is formed in a couple of different ways. First, we learn through experience. And secondly, we learn through others. When we form beliefs based upon our experiences, we draw on what we have personally seen, felt, or heard. And the more often we experience the same thing happen over and over again, the stronger our beliefs about it become. So for example, if you get broken up with or cheated on five times in a row, the deeper and deeper the belief that you will always be cheated on, or maybe that you are somehow undesirable, that belief gets driven into you more and more. If a child experiences something traumatic, like being abused by their caregiver, they start to believe maybe that they are a bad kid. They deserve to be in pain. They deserve to get hit. They also maybe start to, not maybe, they definitely start developing a belief that if I can't think that my mom or dad is safe, this world, no one is safe. And anyone can hurt me. People will hurt me. Love is pain. A very simple example of this, when you are a child, you touch a hot stove, 
you burn the shit out of yourself, you learn, oh, stoves will burn me. This is a belief formed through experience. And if this happens more than once, it reinforces that lesson. It reinforces that belief. So in the same way, in the same way, we develop our experience through others. So for example, zooming out, our ancestors would let one another know about poisonous plants or dangerous animals and rough terrain to make sure that no one in their social group had to risk learning through experience. And without the ability for us to learn from other people, we would all have to make the same mistakes to figure out what's dangerous and what's safe. So there are good ways of learning beliefs through experience and others. But as we described in these instances of abuse, this can also take a maladaptive turn for the worst. These are the risks that come with both learning through experience and learning through others. And whether we learn it from experience or other people, this is why it's so important to question the beliefs, values, and perspectives that we've picked up along our lives because some of them are great, like don't touch a hot stove or look both ways before you cross the street. Buckle your seatbelt. Don't maybe have more than three drinks without having a glass of water and taking a break, right? There are certain things that we learn that are adaptive, that are helpful, that maybe these things don't need to be questioned. I doubt that you have to question the belief to look before you cross the road, but there are many beliefs that we pick up from others and experiences that we should question. The beliefs that we learn or inherit are heavily influenced by the situation in which we learn them or the people that we learn them from. And unfortunately, this means that there's a certain amount of chance or luck involved in the influence that we get from our environment. So to prevent our own beliefs being defined by chance, it's our responsibility to develop an awareness of the beliefs that we've acquired along the way at this moment now in your life right now. It's time for you to take the responsibility to develop an awareness of these beliefs which is what this exercise this week is going to help you start to uncover. And then we're going to use what's called the Socratic method of questioning to question these beliefs, to make sure that these beliefs are still working for you rather than against you. For example, if you grew up getting bullied or picked on, there's a really good chance that you have low self-esteem. And this happens as a result of being told that you're worthless, weird, weak, crazy. And then you start to believe these things about yourself. We've talked about this in our narrative therapy episode. However, in reality, bullying is much less to do with the victim and more to do with the bully projecting his own insecurities and internal suffering onto an easy target. It's hard to take that higher view as a child when you are being bullied but now you can understand the importance of questioning these beliefs now and seeing it for what it actually was as an adult. And then you have the power to decide whether or not another person's opinion or internal suffering that they're projecting is something that you want to continue defining your opinion of yourself by. Something else, prejudice. Growing up around people that are prejudiced to another group of people will mean that you may grow up 
thinking the same way. I grew up with some of my family members who are from the deep South and my partner was of a different race to me. And I have family members who deeply believe that interracial relationships are wrong. So if you grew up with people around you with prejudices, and it is highly likely that you do, you may grow up thinking the same way, sharing the same beliefs, and judging people because of the group that they belong to rather than their character. This is extremely common and it's our responsibility to examine what we believe about other people and decide whether or not our beliefs are reasonable. This is important too, especially in our current day and age, regardless of which political end of the spectrum you fall on. We have Democrats that say that all Republicans are trash. For example, we've got Republicans that say that any liberal person is trash. It's these vast generalizations and we stop seeing people for who they are. I can tell you that I know people in my life that fall squarely on both sides of the political fence that are good, kind, moral human beings. And I don't see them for the beliefs that they hold. I see them for their character for the choices that they make, the things that they do, the way that they treat people. So once you've done the first part of your assignment for a week, journaling the feelings that come up, the trigger, and then the thought spiral that emerges, and you then sit down at the end of the week and evaluate for overarching narratives and trends and zooming out, looking at it like a scientist, like a thought detective, Part two of this experiment into the second week is doing the same thing. Maybe you don't have to note down all of your feelings. You can just kind of become more aware of them. And then you're going to start using the Socratic method. And now that you know who Socrates was and why his method of questioning our beliefs and behaviors have made its way into cognitive behavioral therapy, all different types of psychotherapy, it is still relevant thousands of years later because it is so effective. So the Socratic method, we can split it into six different parts. And these parts, when done in sequence, can be used at any time that you're trying to reframe a thought or belief. You can use this effectively to really help you rethink the way that you see the world. It'll help you weed out these negative, destructive, and limiting beliefs, these cognitive distortions that are standing in the way between you and probably good intimate relationships, feeling good about yourself, self-compassion, maybe really finding what you are meant to do in this world. If there is no more important task for you to undertake, you, I'm speaking directly to you because I know that whoever is listening to this right now needs to hear this. This is the most important thing you could do in your life right now is doing these exercises that I'm challenging you to undertake this week and then start utilizing Socratic method of questioning your beliefs. So the Socratic method, as I said before, Socratic questioning has six different parts. One, identify what you're thinking. Two, challenge the thought. Three, examine the facts 
behind your beliefs. Four, look at it from a different angle. Five, explore the implications and consequences. And six, question the question. So let's break these parts down a little bit. And when you're going to use this is in the second week, after you've just logged your feelings, triggers, and thought patterns, and you've observed everything in the second week, you're going to be quicker to realize when you start to become dysregulated. So what you're going to do to practice Socratic questioning is first, you may want to write these down and put it somewhere where you're always seeing it. You can look up Socratic method on the internet and you will find all of this listed out. Write down the Socratic method of questioning and keep it either on your iPhone notes or on your refrigerator, wherever you're going to see it, carry it around with you. Maybe put it on your phone lock screen if you need to. That's what I did. And when you feel a negative feeling, emotion, or thought pop up, identify what you're thinking. That's step one. And how do you do that? You start asking yourself, why do I say that? Or why do I think that? For example, let's use the partner hasn't texted us back example. Why do I think that because they're not texting me back that they hate me and they're going to break up with me and that I'm going to be alone forever? What is my reaction to this thought? Then next is challenge the thought. Is this always true? Under what conditions could this not be true? What assumptions am I making? Do I always have to react this way to that thought? Do you see how powerful this can be? Then you move to step three. Examine the facts behind your belief. Is my source reliable? <laughs> In this case, your source is probably your your uh, erratic emotions. Is there any evidence to contradict this belief? How do I know it to be true? And you can already see how influential the Socratic method has been in therapy. Because if you are familiar with dialectical behavior therapy, you know that a DBT skill is check the facts. Clearly, this came from the Socratic method. Now, the next step is look at the problem, thought, feeling, reaction, belief from a different angle. Is it possible for someone to see this in a different way than me? What would be the counter argument? So as you work your way through the Socratic method, you can really ask yourself, did your perspective change? And if so, which of these parts of the Socratic method helped you view it differently? And then you can ask yourself, did you learn anything about your thought processes, cognitive distortions, or biases? You will learn so much about yourself. And not only that, what I realized by doing the Socratic method and doing this journaling exercise that I'm sharing with you today, this made such an impact. And also this helped me stop emotionally dumping so much on my friends and family. I used to always feel like I had to go when I'm panicking, I'd go straight to my sister or straight to my friend and say, oh my God, so-and-so isn't texting me back they're going to break me up. And then someone else in my life would have to like walk me down off this ledge. And thankfully I have a lot of emotionally balanced people in my life that would give me likely they're kind of like utilizing the Socratic method on me being like, do you really think that's true? Like, 
he's probably just caught in traffic or his phone is dead or blah, blah, blah. I bet you he'll text you in three hours. Just do something else to distract yourself. And then the people in our lives, rightfully so, are feeling so burdened because we're unable to emotionally regulate ourselves, self-soothe ourselves. The Socratic method will be something that will allow you to feel so much more grounded, centered, and in control of soothing yourself. It's really, really empowering. And people around you will thank you for it because then you can just, if you still are freaking out by the end of all the Socratic questioning, then maybe you can go and calmly ask someone that you trust for their advice. But nine times out of 10, you're not even going to feel like you need to do that anymore. You'll know and decide and start to come to understand that the answers were within you all along. You have enough wisdom to know. You just have to calm your emotions down and your fight or flight response down enough so that you can ask yourself these questions. Then you become your own loving, caring parent. And this isn't easy. Whether you identify with BPD or you even don't, maybe you're someone who doesn't identify with BPD traits and you are a friend or family member or someone who's just coming across this podcast because you are emotionally sensitive. Culturally, everyone right now is seeming to become increasingly bad at working through complex problems. We are losing collectively the ability to question our beliefs, to work through cognitive distortions. And this is partially due to our growing inability to participate in open discussion, respectfully discuss our differences and debate with critical thinking. We are living in a social and political climate that is growing more and more noisy, complex, divisive, mistrustful in a time where we are more than ever in need of objective, open, frank, zoomed out discussion. But right now, it's almost like from all sides of the aisle, whatever you believe, there's always this really instinctive movement to shut down any discussion that might be uncomfortable, inconvenient, difficult, or challenging, which are basically the conversations we need to solve our biggest problems as a society. And the only chance we have, in my opinion, to solve these complex problems and become closer and see the humanity in our fellow human beings is to openly discuss these things, question our deeply held beliefs, because the more we shut down discussion, the less people can understand our most complex feelings and emotions. And then this like big chasm between us as people continues to grow. And we rely on clickbaity articles to fill in the gaps. That is a very dangerous place to be. But that's just how these cognitive distortions and thought patterns affect us at a societal and cultural level. And there isn't much we can do to change the way other people think and believe. It starts with you. I really challenge you to do this homework this week. 
It is going to transform the way that you move through the world. It's going to drastically increase your feelings of inner peace. So your assignment is to, in your phone or on a piece of paper for this entire next week, notice the feelings and sensations that arise when you're starting to become dysregulated or triggered. Identify second, the triggering event that started it, and then write down the thought spirals that come after that. The thoughts that I'm always, that I never, I, they should do this. Write that down at the end of the week, sit down with it, put on your detective persona, zoom all the way out, disidentify, depersonalize from the information, read through it all and start noting down some things. Identify where the cognitive distortions are, where the splitting is. Identify the overarching themes. What would a person that thinks and believes in the way that you observe, how would they view the world? How would they be to be in a relationship with? Would you want to hang out with them? Would they be emotionally and psychologically healthy? And it's going to be hard. It was hard as hell when I did this because when I looked back at my stuff that I wrote down and my themes, it was someone who hated themselves, who was probably not very fun to be around. It was no surprise that a person that thought and believed the way that I did was not even wanting to be alive anymore. And I had to zoom out and realize that I had the information. All it is is data. And what I could use instead of woe is meing about the data, I said, okay, here's where I'm at. There's nowhere to go but up from here. And I'm going to start using the Socratic method of questioning to start questioning my thoughts and beliefs. And I will tell you what. I am now so good at self-soothing and down-regulating my own emotions. I don't emotionally dump on people anymore because I can question my own thoughts and beliefs and get myself to a more realistic perspective through this work. And remember, you are not broken. It is possible for everyone to do this if you work hard enough at it and you will see positive change from this. Is everything going to be perfect? Are you never going to have a bad feeling again? Are you going to be healed or cured? No. But will your sense of peace increase? Yes. Absolutely, I can promise you that. Will you be able to weather the storm better? Will you be able to surf the waves of life and see that things come and go and most of the things you're worrying about are not the end of the world? Yep, definitely. I can promise you that one. So I'm going to play a voicemail from a listener, Jeremy, because I felt like his voicemail was so perfect to play and respond to at the very end of this particular episode. So let's hear what Jeremy had to say calling into the podcast. Hi there, Molly. Uh, My name is Jeremy. I'm 40 years old and I am in New York City. I'm an OCBPD, though I know you don't much care for the specific labels. (laughs) Um, 
I've been doing a lot of personal work through books on top of therapy, and they so often suggest that you reach out to trusted others. They don't seem, they seem to hand wave a little bit that if you're really struggling and you're constantly talking to your trusted others, you kind of risk becoming a burden to them and driving them away. And then they'll continue to hand wave, oh, go to therapy. Uh, As if once you're in therapy, it'll just all work out. And I don't find that to be true. And I'm curious if you or any of your many, many books uh, have anything to say about balancing that strategy with the impact on the people in your life. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Jeremy. Thank you for this amazing question and so well articulated. And I know the vast majority of us can relate to it. I absolutely can. And I hope now by this point in the episode, you can understand why I chose to close with Jeremy's question rather than open with it. Because it ties everything that we've worked on today together so, so well. Because it's so true, in my opinion, you hear over and over again from books, articles, and resources, seek help from the people around you, just go to therapy. And I just got so fucking tired of hearing these almost looped suggestions and I can relate to your sense of frustration because how so many of us feel is that we are going to fucking therapy and it doesn't feel like it's working. We are going to our friends with our worries, but we feel like we're clinging and pushing them away and maybe some of them are cutting off from us because they can't take it. And then that further makes us feel like we can't trust therapy and that we are somehow broken because if everybody else can go to their friends for help and support and advice and we somehow are seeing that blow up in our face, that there's something wrong with us, which then further ingrains these fucked up narratives and beliefs and cognitive distortions. Ah, wow. This is how we get here. But let me tell you, I hope that this episode, Jeremy, has helped you and it has helped you, listener, who's listening right now, because I felt this same way. Therapy can feel frustrating, I think. Many of us end up in the offices of therapists who are well-meaning, but they're just people who maybe have taken four years of college and have learned the very basics, they haven't dived under the hood, and many times they haven't even done any of their emotional work. It is very rare that you're going to find a good, good therapist that can really dive under the surface with you. And not only that, I'm not bagging on therapy, by the way, but I am saying that therapy can only do so much. It is up to us to constantly be with ourselves and be aware of our feelings, thoughts, beliefs, behaviors, reactions, and start developing an awareness of those, questioning why they are there, utilizing the zoom out method, 
and depersonalizing things and deciding that we're going to do something differently. Also, Jeremy's part of his question where he is talking about how he's finding that he feels like a burden and he's driving people away. If we use the exercises that I've shared with you this week, really start tracking your feelings and identifying those common narratives and then starting to utilize the Socratic method of questioning to regulate yourself, you'll start to see that you don't have to go to your friends and trusted others for every single perceived bump in the road. You can start to feel like you can handle things more yourself and then go to your friends and trusted others when you're in a more regulated state and also with a different perspective. I used to go to my quote trusted others with this energy of them needing to save me, for them to make me feel better, for them to make it all okay. And again, they're just human beings going through their own shit and they can't save us. So when we utilize the Socratic method, when we zoom out, when we depersonalize, when we become better at regulating ourselves, when we go to our trusted others, we're bringing a different energy. We're maybe just hey, can I get your perspective on something instead of coming to them when we are spiraling and out of control and maybe not even asking them if they have the space. And maybe also I felt like I used to have this energy of a drowning person before I had the ability to regulate myself and start taking responsibility for this work. I would go to people and you know when they say to not try and save a drowning person by going out because they're just going to cling on to you and then you both will end up drowning. I feel like other people loved me so much, but they were scared of me dragging them down and drowning them too. That's the energy I had. And you can't blame the people in your life when they have probably so much going on. And when we're acting like we're the main character of the universe, by the way, I'm not saying you are doing this, Jeremy. This was how I was. Maybe you can relate. Maybe you can't. But I was going to my trusted others as if I was the main character of the entire universe and everyone was just a character in my play meant to like help me and save me. I wasn't conscious of this, but that was the vibe. That was the energy I was putting out. And as I get more emotionally secure, as I identify less and less with BPD symptomology because of this work that I'm doing, when I'm approached by people that are trying to use me in that way, like drag me down in their emotional spiral, I sense it and I go, whoa, I have compassion for them. And then I also see myself and I realize that's why, that's why my friends and family were so distanced from me. That's why. So this work is going to allow you to be someone who can go to your trusted others in a healthy way, just gaining some perspective And I'm not saying to avoid going to someone that you love if you are in a crisis. You know, that is important. You need to go to someone that you trust, a therapist, a loved one. If you are in a serious crisis where you are worried about your safety or the safety of others, you should never worry about being a burden. I'm referring to all the times that maybe if we go through the Socratic method first, 
then we can see and filter out all of the times when maybe we could have regulated ourselves. And then we only go to our trusted others when it's genuinely an emergency or we wait till we're more regulated and wait till we see them or ask them if they have time for a chat, texting someone instead of dumping a 25 paragraph text, just shooting and say, Hey, do you have time to chat on Friday? Like I want to catch up and see how it's going. Ask them how they're doing first, make this a give and take exchange. And then maybe ask their perspective on something that you're going through. And that give and take that sharing makes people feel like it's a reciprocal relationship rather than one in which they are being used as like saving a drowning person always, where maybe we can start to feel like a burden and no one likes to feel that way. I hated feeling that way. I was hypersensitive and I could totally tell when someone was starting to feel overwhelmed or annoyed by me. And it was a horrible way to feel. And now that I've done this work and I make it a habit to use Socratic questioning, that doesn't happen anymore. And I'm confident in telling you, I don't make a lot of promises, but I can promise if you are diligent about this work, I can promise you, you will see a huge difference in the way you feel in how your life is and the way that people are with you. So with that, I'll tie things up for this episode over on the premium version of the podcast. We are continuing to work our way through the hero's journey. This is a multi-step, multi-episode, immersive visualization, therapeutic, spiritual practice that has helped me so much in my journey. And already my premium subscribers are saying the incredible impact it's having. So if you would like to tune into that, you can dive into the Hero's Journey episodes and tons of other premium content that is accessible only to my premium access subscribers by going to backfromtheborderline.com and clicking unlock premium access and following those instructions there. If you would like to leave me a voicemail, and have a chance to hear your voice on the podcast, you can also do that on my website, backfromtheborderline.com and clicking the little microphone icon. So with that, I will leave you. I'm really expecting you to do your homework this week. I'm taking like big teacher energy right now. Do your homework. Don't come back next week to the podcast without doing your homework. I'm going to be upset. <laughs> it's really, really going to help you. So do the homework. I love you so, so much. Thank you to everyone who has written me a review yet again. If you want to just be my BFF forever, please, if you listen on Apple Podcasts, write me a review. I would love it. And if you listen elsewhere, rate and review. That's super helpful too. And until next time, sending you big hugs from me to you. Have an awesome week and do your homework. Okay, bye. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Back from the Borderline. If you'd like to receive my monthly written recovery musings via Substack directly to your inbox, send me a voicemail, join the Patreon community, or check out my Amazon booklist recommendations, visit backfromtheborderline.com and click to access my link tree.